Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Death and the Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, The Crucifixion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 27, 32 to 44, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When Matthew speaks about Jesus hanging on the cross, he does so through the eyes of five different people or groups that see Jesus there. The first is Simon of Cyrene, who, although unwillingly, will serve Jesus in his moments of suffering. The second is a group of soldiers who crucify him. The third are a group of bypassers who mock him. The fourth are the chief priests, that is, Annas and Caiaphas, along with the elders who can't help but gloat. From their perspective, they've won utterly. And then finally, the fifth group are the thieves who are hung on the cross, one on each side of him. Each brings their own perspective to the crucifixion. Each ones have their eyes focused on the cross, and while many of the reactions are the same, yet they differ in some respects. But as we look at this secondary group of people, we recognize that their story, that is, what they saw and what they did, highlights the intensity of the suffering of Jesus. Much was made, especially in modern times, of the actual cruelty on the cross. I myself have spoken about this matter often. Crucifixion is without a doubt the cruelest method the human race has ever devised to put someone to death. The Romans intended the suffering of the victims on the cross to be so great that it made you face the terror of what would happen to you should you decide to either rebel against Rome or break laws worthy of capital punishment. Crucifixion was intended to horrify people into submission. And while the people who originally read the book of Matthew were no doubt familiar with crucifixion, Matthew's focus is not so much on the physical sufferings itself. Of course, the physical suffering was overwhelming, so much so that we would expect the one suffering would pay attention to nothing but his own suffering. But to this matter, let's do what Matthew tells us we must do. Let's view the crucifixion of Jesus through the lens of five different groups of people. We start first with Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. That's all Matthew tells us about this man named Simon, very little. But let's start with why this part of the story is necessary. Executions or crucifixions were not carried on inside the city. They were carried on outside of the city. Those who were crucified were then required to carry the instrument of their torture by which they would die to the place of their crucifixion. The Romans made sport of this, and as with everything else surrounding crucifixion, it was done to utterly humiliate the victims and to dehumanize them as much as was possible. And so here we are. Jesus is called upon to carry his cross, and sometimes, you know, scholars are divided as to whether Jesus would have been required only to carry the crossbeam of the cross or whether he would carry the entire cross. But since Matthew, as well as the other writers, speak about carrying the cross, well, I have to assume it meant the whole thing. And the weight of the cross, that would have been considerable. But even so, you'd have to think it was possible. But please remember that Jesus had been savagely scourged. His back is now a horrible sight to see. The blood loss would have been significant. And so at this point, it's fascinating that Jesus was actually able to walk to the place of the cross at least a little while. And we know from John that Jesus did carry his own cross and that he was overcome. 
at some point he was unable to go on. And so the Roman legionnaires were permitted to make demands on people. And for reasons that are not explained, they picked this man named Simon. Matthew adds that he was a man from Cyrene, and Cyrene is a city that we know today as a part of the nation of Libya. So was Simon a Jew? Or did the Romans deliberately select a non-Jew to do this work? Again, the text makes no mention. But Mark in his gospel gives us a clue. Mark 15:21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. There's a wonderful story about those two sons. Paul, in the close of the book of Romans, makes mention of a man named Rufus, and he's part of the Roman church. And there's a strong tradition that identifies this Rufus as the very Rufus that Mark mentions, the son of Simon. And furthermore, Paul also mentions the mother of Rufus, who herself was a believer. So it seems quite likely that Simon of Cyrene was a man who had come to Jerusalem for Passover. He may have been a Gentile because the names of his two sons are not Jewish names. In that case, he would have been a God-fearer. So he would have come to Israel to observe the festival. But the key to this is that whatever happened when Simon carried Jesus' cross was that his act was an act of kindness. Yeah, he was conscripted, but in some fashion, his interaction with Jesus on the road to crucifixion very likely led to his conversion. And so we not only see the kindness of Simon, but we see the grace of Jesus, that in his sufferings, he's reaching out to this man, blinded by pain, and yet not ignorant of the man who was carrying his cross and the need that man had for grace. So let's turn to the second interaction with Jesus, and this is the interaction of the soldiers. I'm reading Matthew 27, 33 to 37. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. You know, Jesus has arrived at a place called Golgotha. Matthew further identifies where this is. He calls it the place of the skull. So why is it called that? Well, we don't actually know, but one suggestion has been that there was a skull-shaped formation in the side of a hill. Now, I suppose that might have been, but the text doesn't say that. Another suggestion is that the Romans left some of the skulls of their victims there to identify this place as the location for crucifixion. You know, possibly, and again, we just don't know. It's quite likely that the term skull means that it's the place of death. And given that there were no doubt other crucifixions that had been done in this same place, this place smelled like death, blood, flies, a wretched place. One might wonder why anyone wanted to even be there. At any rate, the Roman soldiers that were there have a job to do. They crucify people there. And I notice that Matthew draws our attention to the fact that they offered Jesus wine mixed with gall. Now, gall refers to something that was bitter to the taste. Now, Jesus may not have been aware of what they were offering him because he begins to drink it, and then, realizing what it is, he refuses to drink any further. So what was it? Well, according to Mark 15, 23, the bitter substance was myrrh, and that was most likely a pain-killing narcotic. And so some think that it must have been an act of kindness. But why would a hardened Roman soldier care about the pain of his victim? 
It was Dr. Don Carson who said that this wine had been deliberately made so bitter that the victim would have refused to drink it. And it turns out that it would not have been a gracious act after all, but it would have been a part of the soldier's mockery of their prisoner. Well, Gundry thinks the same. Well, these scholars may well be right. But these words also fulfill Psalm 69, 20-21. That says, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Well, I think there's still another reason why Jesus refused to be given a painkiller, even though it was bitter. He refused to dull the pain because he was called upon to bear the sins of the world. He's conscious of his role as one who bears suffering for the crimes against God. He knows at all times that he has work to do on the cross, and he will not be dissuaded. Let's get back to the Roman soldiers. Matthew reduces the drama to the actual act of crucifying Jesus. It's a half a sentence. Matthew simply says, and after they had crucified him, simple as that, stretched Jesus on the cross, his bloodied back dragged against the rough cross, the nailing of his hands and feet, the lifting of the cross off the ground, the dropping him into a hole, no doubt popping Jesus' shoulder joints out, the excruciating pain, the cruelty, and all of that. All of that's reduced to a single sentence. And when they had crucified him, why is so little said? Well, the answer is that Matthew wants us to see the soldiers stripping Jesus naked, cruelly crucifying him. But look at these men, says Matthew. They pay no attention to his suffering. They have other concerns. They're looking for any treasure that they might find among his belongings. And when they find only a seamless robe, they decide to cast lots for it. You know, in our day, it's like drawing straws to see who's the lucky one and who gets the little that's left. And the others curse their bad luck. In all of that, Jesus is on the cross and he's not the focus of the soldiers. Yeah, there's a bit of mockery of the victim. There's the grim act of crucifying him. And there's the hope of some financial gain. And that's it for them. There hangs Jesus, forsaken of all pity. Indeed, the soldiers pay no attention to his suffering. Forsaken indeed. The Easter season is upon us. It's a time we celebrate and honor the victory of our Savior. Sin was defeated and forgiveness won. Because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we can now look beyond this world to the eternal, heavenly relationship that awaits with the Creator. To help you commemorate and meditate on this precious act of love, Back to the Bible Canada is offering two Easter-themed programs this season. Visit our YouTube channel and check out Dr. John's nine-message series, Journey to the Cross. And be sure to also tune in to his four-week audio series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, based on the book of Matthew. This series, along with many others from years past, can also be found at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, perhaps consider giving a gift to sustain the creation of future Bible teaching resources from Back to the Bible Canada. After Jesus has been crucified, Matthew says, the soldiers sat down and kept watch over him. I don't think they're concerned he's going to escape, but they are called upon to ensure that no one tries to rescue him, and they are also a witness when he dies. By now their work is done, and they have no other duty than to watch. 
Matthew also says they put a sign over his head and they attached it to the cross, which read the King of the Jews. Matthew makes no other mention other than that's what they did. But John tells us that Pilate gave the order that this sign should be attached in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. John says the sign displeased the religious authorities. They wanted the sign to be changed. They thought it should say, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews, but Pilate refused to change it. So there hangs Jesus, guarded by the soldiers who crucified him with a sign of his kingship over his head. I'm certainly not the first to notice the significance of the sign. Yeah, Jesus really is the king of the Jews, and he is king over all. And though the sign may have been a mockery in the eyes of some, the sign is the glory of the church. Jesus really is the king, the king who rules from the cross. Paul thought that the cross demonstrated the authority of Jesus. In Colossians 2.15, he said, He, that is God the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Christ. God defeated all things through the triumph of Christ on his cross, submitting to the Father unto death, refusing any course outside of the course that the Father had called him to walk. He, our substitutionary sacrifice, now has found a way for ruined sinners to be forgiven. Yeah, the rulers of the spiritual realm are defeated as Jesus hangs dying on the cross. But it certainly doesn't seem that way to the soldiers. I mean, they hang him there and they keep watch until this miserable business ends in death. So we've looked at two different groups, Simon of Cyrene and then the soldiers. And the third group are the two thieves that are crucified at the same time. And I'm reading here Matthew 27, verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Matthew calls them robbers. Luke calls them criminals. And so in his death, Jesus is identified with a criminal class, even though Pilate had already said he found no guilt in him. The message is lost, given the men Jesus was crucified with. Luke says that before the crucifixion, Jesus had made mention of this. He had quoted Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. That is, from the perspective of anyone who walked by, there was nothing outside of the sign over Jesus' head. And there was nothing outside of that, that would make this crucifixion look different than any other crucifixion of criminals. And then the fourth group, the passers-by. This is not a casual traffic. This group must have included those who screamed for his crucifixion. This group must have included the false and lying witnesses who gave evidence against Jesus in the Sanhedrin. And this group must also have been the turncoats, the ones who at one time praised him, and then when the tide of opinion turned against him, they were just swept along with a new stream of thinking and willingly turned on him now. I don't imagine that there were any friendly or concerned faces in that crowd. The looks on the faces were filled with hate. I'm reading Matthew 27, 39 to 40. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So what's a passerby? These are people on their way to somewhere else. They're not intent on remaining there. They're people who have other things to do. They're not going to linger, but they're going to stop and have a look, and they're going to mock. I know that as Christians, we rightly assume that the cross is the center point of all of human history. Before the cross, all of history was leading to this one place. So much so that First Peter, speaking of Jesus, says that all who have come to believe in him were ransomed from the futility inherited from our ancestors. Peter has in mind nothing short of the cross. That's where our ransom was paid. 
The price of our redemption is the price of his blood. And then in 1 Peter 1.21, speaking of the cross, Peter adds, He was foreknown from before the foundation of the world. That is to say, before God uttered the words, let there be light. Before God created anything, he had already decreed there would be a cross. And it's a mouthful to say it, but it is so. The ultimate display of the glory of God is not creation, it's the cross. Yeah, the creation speaks of the magnificence of the creator, but the language of creation, no matter how grand and how wonderful, all of that pales in comparison to the splendor of the God that sent his son to the cross. But it's not so with the passerbys. They stop, they heap insults, and then they're off to somewhere else. But of course, it's not just that they're off to somewhere else. These individuals are people who think it expedient to make a comment, or more accurately, to hurl an accusation or an insult in his direction. And one of those accusations comes from one of the false witnesses. You said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, I know when I read this, I want to say, just wait, the three days are coming. From the beginning, he was speaking of the temple of his body, and he's going to triumph. Just Hang around and watch what happens next. He's going to rise. But the one hurling the insults has no understanding. He just simply says, look at you. Where's your power now? Why can't you even deliver yourself from death? Everything you ever claimed is all a lie. You're a fraud. You're an imposter. And we've proved it. Now, of course, the one hanging from the cross does have the power to come down at that very moment, but he won't. And the one hanging on the cross has the power to destroy the one who insults him he won't. He hangs there for the reason that this is the only way in which vile sinners like that passerby might be forgiven. Have you ever considered why genuine Christians never respond with violence when Jesus is mocked? There are those in Islam who pass anti-blasphemy laws, utter something unwelcome about the prophet, you'll be prosecuted. Genuine Christianity never has acted that way. Jesus was mocked and ridiculed, and yet He offers forgiveness to those who treated him so. This may seem humiliating to some. It's not an act of weakness. It's an act of strength. The one who could easily have stepped off the cross does not do so so that he might offer forgiveness. Now the fifth group of people, and they're the most vile of all, Matthew 27, 41 to 43. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now this group, let's be very clear. They include a man named Annas, the previous high priest. He's powerful, and he directed the current high priest. The next is Caiaphas. He's the current high priest. These men have led the plot to murder Jesus from the beginning. They're men not interested in truth. They're interested in power. And now they can't contain their glee. They've triumphed and Jesus has lost. Even though they have wanted to kill Jesus when no one was watching, and even though the plan didn't work out, and yet here is Jesus crucified before the watching crowds at Passover, and the crowds are on their side. They believe they've bested Jesus in every way. But of course, Annas and Caiaphas are not alone. Along with them are the scribes who are the elite of the Pharisees and the elders, the men of the Sanhedrin. They think they now have solidarity. Their hold over the Jewish community is now absolute. They will, after Jesus' death, continually denigrate Jesus and drive anyone from him. They have won, they think. 
and they mock Jesus. Come down from the cross, you son of God. And if you can't, then let God rescue you. And if he doesn't rescue you, isn't that evidence that God doesn't favor you? He favors us. We have won. Find it fascinating that at this point, Matthew draws our attention back to the two criminals hanging next to Jesus. Matthew 27, 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Look, I know that sometime after that, as the three continued to hang on their crosses, one of those thieves repented, turned to Jesus for mercy. That's a story in and of itself. But at this time, the mockery of the crowd even results in the insults from those crucified with him. Matthew's portrait of the crucifixion might seem troubling instead of drawing our attention to his suffering. Outside of Simon of Cyrene, Matthew draws our attention to the fact that Christ was abandoned, that he was forsaken of men, that people either covered their faces or made light of his sufferings, calling him a fraud and an impotent prophet of God. What a picture of our dying Savior. He who could have stepped down from the cross chose to remain there. And because he chose to remain, now think of it. Countless millions upon millions kneel before him and call him our Savior and our Lord. Oh, how we marvel at the one who rules from the cross. What wondrous love is this. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, is there any irony in the idea that the cross of all things is the symbol of the Christian faith? Yeah, I, I do know that, uh, you know, we think of it quite naturally now as, you know, crosses on uh, church buildings, uh, crosses hung around necks when we walk into a place of worship in a local church. Uh, it's not surprising to see a cross at the front. I mean, the cross in our day is, of course, the symbol of the Christian faith. But that ought to shock us. Because if we think about the milieu out of which it came, uh, the cross would have been something horrifying and it would have been the object of great shame. And so when we recognize that the cross did become the symbol of the, of the Christian faith, we remember that it is out of the great shame of the cross that our salvation was wrought. And so we can see again just how much we are loved by God and to what extent Christ sacrificed for us. Um, You know, viewing things from that perspective will help us to love Christ more. We'll say, what wondrous love is this? Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425 and please note, 
that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.